Welcome back to yet another super awesome episode of Digging Up the Past. They are all super awesome, aren't they? And wow, we are at 10 whole episodes. And, you know, at the end of the day, it isn't such a huge milestone, but I'll be honest with you. I didn't think I would make it this far. Between my ADHD and my bipolar 2, I tend to move away from new projects, but it is you, the listeners, that keep me motivated and going. So please continue sending those comments and those emails. I enjoy reading them. I am your host, Petros Katupis. Now, what are we going to talk about today? The Sea Peoples. Yes, the Sea Peoples. I am finally going to do it. This is a topic I am most passionate about. Why, you ask? Well, it is because even though we know so much about them, we still do not know enough. They are a mysterious group of people written about in ancient sources. We're talking about Egyptian sources, Near Eastern sources, biblical sources, and it may surprise the listener to hear me say Homeric sources. Okay, maybe hearing that won't surprise you too much. Anyway, back on topic. If you have been listening to my podcast, there will be a tiny bit of repeat here. What I mean is that you may have heard me say a few things here and there in prior episodes, but before we talk about the Sea Peoples, we need to set the stage and to the time that preceded them. It will all make sense shortly, I promise. The Late Bronze Age, the 15th century BCE. Power and control over the Aegean world transitioned from the Minoans into the now powerful Mycenaean Greeks for reasons we still do not entirely understand. These Greeks were the ancestors to later Greeks of the classical period, and the classical texts referred to them as the Achaeans, the Danans, the Argives, but never Mycenaean. The term Mycenaean was coined much later and closer to modern history upon the discovery of the ancient civilization, and modern scholars named them after the location and citadel of Mycenae in Argolis, located in the eastern Peloponnese of mainland Greece. The classical authors placed their ancestors in a remote, distant past during an age of heroes in what they considered to be a golden era. An era of prosperity, and it sort of was for a short while. So, how did the Mycenaeans gain such power and control over the eastern Mediterranean? It was the land, filled with rugged mountain ranges, wooded valleys, and fertile plains. Their coastline of bays and beaches gave them easy access to the sea. It was in this landscape that the Mycenaeans thrived and flourished. They farmed the fertile soil and exploited the natural resources of their countryside. This allowed them to grow in both wealth and power. These many natural safe harbors on the coast, alongside their central position between the lands of the East and West Mediterranean, allowed the Mycenaeans to be key facilitators of contact and trade. But what made things easier was the fact that they inherited and continued the large Mediterranean trade network created by the Minoans before them. Now, how do we know when the Mycenaeans took over the Aegean and entered the world stage? It is through external sources. For example, 
Egyptian records dating to circa 1437 BCE and during the reign of the pharaoh Thutmose III mentioned the prince of Tanaya or Danaya, that is the Danans or mainland Mycenaean Greeks. Uh, the context of this ancient shout-out signified the world that the Mycenaean rulers were considered equals or at least close to it by the Egyptian pharaoh. This was a big deal. Like ours is today, theirs was a very connected world with a global economy, as is evidenced by the Uluburans shipwreck. Discovered close to the shore of southwestern Turkey, the wreckage dates to approximately the late 14th century BCE. It gives modern scholars a snapshot of the goods being traded across the eastern Mediterranean. It also gives us an indication of the path traveled to get from Egypt all the way to the Aegean, that is, along the coast and making stops at various locations in Canaan, which include Ugarit and at Alashia, which is the ancient name of Cyprus, where it eventually sank in western Anatolia and possibly on its way to the Aegean. Aboard the ship were goods of copper, tin, gold, silver, glass, assorted weapons, food items such as almonds, pine nuts, figs, olives, spices, and more. I wanted to shift focus on another side of the Mycenaeans and one rarely spoken about. They were opportunists. For example, in the year 2006, news outlets all across the globe began to report of an extraordinary archaeological find from a Mycenaean so-called Palace of Ajax, located on the island of Salamis, the largest island within the Saronic Gulf in the Attica region of Greece. Uh, this find was of a bronze scale belonging to a larger quilted piece of armor typically fitted over the torso. This scale was uh, stamped with the royal cartouche of the pharaoh Ramses II, that is uh, Ramses the Great. Uh, this find alone rewrote part of what we knew of Greek history during the Bronze Age and their role outside of the Aegean. What made this find truly unique was the fact that this was not the typical armor uh, worn by the Mycenaeans during the late Bronze Age. Attested by Mycenaean Greek arts and archaeological finds of Mycenaean weaponry and armor, it is well understood that early in their civilization, the Mycenaean wore a full body armor referred to as the panoply. It consisted of several elements, which includes uh, a body cuirass, uh, shoulder guards, breastplates, and a lower uh, protection plates. The panoply also included both greaves and lower arm guards. Uh, the best-known example has been discovered at the village of Dendra in the Argolid, Greece, dating to approximately the 15th century BCE. The typical helmet that uh, accompanied this outfit was made of boar's tusk, which recalls Homer's Iliad. For example, in Book 10, lines 260 through 265 read, and Marionis gave to Odysseus a bow and a quiver and a sword, and about his head he set a helm wrought of hide, and with many a tight-stretched thong was it made stiff within, while without the white teeth of a boar, gleaming tusks were set thick on the side, and that, well, and cunningly, and within was fixed a lining of felt." Being a warrior culture led by warrior rulers, it is believed that this was 
one such method with how a warrior earned their place in Mycenaean Greek society by hunting the wild boar for his armor. By 1200 BCE, the armor style had gone through some changes. Depicted and inscribed on the mortuary temple of Ramses III at Medinet Habu in the pharaoh's battles against the sea peoples, instead of wearing the heavier bronze armor, the warriors, which are generally believed to have been consisted of Mycenaeans, were wearing a waist-length ribbed leather corslet with a fringed leather apron which reaches down to the middle of their thighs, possibly chosen in favor of mobility, cost, and uh, ease and speed of manufacture. This style of armor is also reflected on the Mycenaean-crafted warrior vase, which is currently on display at the National Archaeological Museum in Athens. Anyway, back to the Egyptian armor scale. It was not uncommon for the nations of the late Bronze Age to employ mercenaries as part of their royal guard or their infantry. Such an example can be seen with Ramses II and the pharaoh's inscriptions at Abu Simbel. In his second year of reign, Ramses boasts of his defeating a group of raiders invading the Egyptian coast at the Nile Delta. This group was identified as the Sheridan, who are sometimes referred to as the Shardana. They were one of the tribes of the Sea Peoples. After the defeat of the Sheridan, the pharaoh took them as captives and offers them an opportunity to be part of the pharaoh's personal bodyguards. The Sheridan are also noted as serving the pharaoh in his most memorable battle against the Hittites at Kadesh in uh, 1274 BCE. In one case, and written in the Papyrus Wilbur, 42 Sheridan are mentioned as beneficiaries of land grants for their services. The services of the Sheridan are also attested to in the Amarna letters. So, could the Mycenaeans also have served the pharaoh in some form? If not as part of his infantry, could they have served in his navy? The Mycenaeans were well-renowned for their seafaring skills and alongside their traded goods across the entire eastern Mediterranean. With their seafaring expertise, they could have limited piracy or an invading force from the sea. Uh, Based on the discovery of Egyptian armor in Greece, we are looking at two possibilities. Uh, The first of which is the Mycenaeans did serve the pharaoh Ramses II as part of his military. The second is the bronze armor scale found its way to Greek shores via trade. It was also not uncommon for bronze manufactured weapons to be traded throughout the eastern Mediterranean. The idea of Mycenaeans serving as Egypt's navy is not my own. In fact, it came up in a casual conversation between myself and Dr. Nano Marinatos when I was asking about the relationship between the Minoans and Egypt while discussing the topic of Minoan frescoes discovered at Avarice, Egypt. If the Minoans provided naval services to the pharaoh while stationed in the Nile Delta, then it would not be unreasonable to believe that the Mycenaeans continued that tradition. Much like today, ancient nations often entered into agreements with foreign allies and were in a sense obligated to serve in some form and capacity should the need ever arise. Enter the Dark Age. What happened? What brought the collapse of the Late Bronze Age and the start of the Iron Age? The answer seems to be unclear. 
for decades that Sea Peoples were the convenient scapegoat, but to blame the end of the late Bronze Age on a single entity seems extremely unlikely. To quote Dr. Eric Klein in his wonderful publication, 1177 BC, the year civilization collapsed, the Sea Peoples may well have been responsible for some of the destruction that occurred at the end of the late Bronze Age, but it is much more likely that a concatenation of events, both human and natural, including climate change and drought, seismic disasters known as earthquake storms, internal rebellions, and system collapse coalesced to create a perfect storm that brought this age to an end. A chain reaction of events seems like a likely and logical answer to this question, but what was the root of the social unrest plaguing the peoples of the Greek mainland? My simplest response is peace. However, this is not a straightforward answer. It requires some background, some explanation. This was followed by a chain of events that resulted in a social reform and the civil unrest of peoples who lived a life seeking opportunities elsewhere. Uh, with no opportunities to serve in the Navy or the Royal Guard of the Pharaoh or elsewhere, many Aegean and Anatolian and possibly Turanian mercenaries turned to a life of piracy, which likely disrupted trade routes leading to and from the Greek mainland and islands. This in turn led to an economic hit, which would have impacted the locals, leading to poverty. Foreign and local aid did not exist. If a region was affected by earthquakes or a lack of resources, including food, they were on their own. So a social reform took place where the elite class were overtaken by the many and raised the palaces in the process. Hence the evidence of destruction at Mycenae, Pylos, etc., circa 1200 BCE. These events of social unrest led many to take on mass migrations elsewhere. They were refugees looking for new opportunities and new homes. Piracy escalated. Cities in Anatolia and the Levant, like that of Ugarit, were either resettled or met similar fates to the cities of the West. In the burnt layers of Ugarit, archaeologists have discovered letters, and three out of the four letters mentioning some sea people seem to foreshadow the destruction of the city at about 1180 BCE. Based on the dating of the destruction of various mainland Greek sites, it seems that Troy Layer 7A fell victim to these sea people migrations, be it from mainland Greeks or nearby Aegean islanders escaping their social unrest, Mycenae was destroyed by an earthquake in 1250 BCE, and after a minor recovery, it appears that an internal struggle stripped the location of its power and influence over the region in around 1190 BCE. Terrans fell closer to 1200 BCE. Pylos met a similar end 11, in 1180 BCE. This marked the end of the late Helladic 3B2 period. We keep calling this period a dark age, but regardless of the brief period of destruction and the social restructuring that took place in the general Aegean, life continued. The only real disruption was just how that life continued. Now enter the Sea Peoples. Who were the Sea Peoples? This is not a simple question to answer, but in summary, 
The Sea Peoples, or the Peoples of the Sea, were an enigmatic confederacy of seafaring raiders from the central and eastern Mediterranean who sailed east and invaded Anatolia, Syria, Canaan, Cyprus, and Egypt toward the end of the Bronze Age. The term used to refer to these foreign migrants is derived from ancient Egyptian sources in which we have numerous documented accounts of battles involving them. It should be noted that not all of the sea peoples originated from the sea, but also from the land such as Anatolia. The sea peoples have been credited for devastating the region and bringing entire nations and whole empires to an end. They pillaged and plundered and burned whole cities as they passed through, or at least that was the initial thought. Identified by Egyptian sources across multiple pharaohs, scholars have isolated but not entirely identified a total of 10 tribes or groups of sea peoples who were said to have wreaked havoc in Egypt. Why Egypt? Well, it was the center of wealth, the center of power and civilization in the then economic world. It would have been an attractive location for anyone looking for new opportunities. So let us go through these documented tribes one by one. The Danuna. The earliest reference we have to the Danuna, also referred to as Danian, Danunites, Danoi, Danaeus, Danaids, Danae, Danai, and Danaian in Egyptian, Hittite, and classical sources come from the Amarna letters, which date to the mid-14th century BCE. Uh, that is EA numbers 117 and 151. Uh, the Amarna letters or the Amarna tablets are an archive of clay tablets primarily consisting of diplomatic correspondences between the Egyptian administration and their representatives in the Levant. The letters are written in an Akkadian cuneiform script, which was a common script and language used throughout both the Mesopotamian and Canaanite world during uh, the 3rd and 2nd millennium BCE. The Danuna also make an appearance on the temple walls at Medinet Habu in Egypt and the Papyrus Harris during the 20th dynasty reign of Pharaoh Ramses III, who reigned between 1186 and 1155 BCE. They were part of the confederation of sea peoples attacking Egypt, to which the Pharaoh was, of course, victorious over them. Numerous theories as to their homeland um, have been suggested, such as Mycenae, Cilicia, or Canaan. However, the strongest theory connects the Danuna with mainland Achaean Greece, uh, connecting them with the, the Danoi or the Danans of Argos that is sung about by Homer. Then we have the Ekwesh. It is generally accepted that the Ekwesh or the Akwash is the Egyptian variant of the Hittite Akiawa, that is Homer's Achaeans, uh, you know, Bronze Age Greeks who were a group among the sea peoples that faced the pharaoh Merneptah in 1207 BCE. By this time, Mycenaean Greeks were dispersed all across the Aegean, so it is unclear whether these Achaeans came from the mainland or from Crete or from western Anatolia or Cyprus or the island of Rhodes or elsewhere. Next on the list is the Luca. It is generally believed that the Luca are the predecessors to the ancient Lycians of southwestern Anatolia, just outside of the Hittite Empire. This was known as the Arzawa lands, and for most of Hittite history was under Hittite control. In the Ugarit tablets, we find letters from the Ugarit king addressed to the king of Alashia, uh, again, that is Cyprus, stating that he will send a fleet to the coasts of Luca to defend the passage from the Aegean to the Mediterranean. 
According to Hittite texts, the Luka were rebellious people, seagoers, and easily swayed by foreign influences. Egyptian texts confirm this viewpoint. They made yearly attacks by sea on the king of Alashia's lands and were considered as pirates. The disaffected group were so despised by the greater powers in the region that at one point, the king of Alashia was appealing to the pharaoh Akhenaten for aid and made an attempt to reassure him that he was not siding with the Luka people. Another group was the Shekelesh. The Shekelesh are an obscure group mentioned in passing in the ancient Egyptian and Ugaritic texts. They attacked Egypt during the reign of uh, the pharaoh Merneptah in 1213 to 1203 BCE, and again during the reign of Ramses III. In both cases, they were part of a larger coalition invading the Nile Delta region. A place of origin considered for the Shekelesh is uh, Sagalassos in uh, Syria and directly north of the Luka lands. Hittite documents from the 14th century BCE refer to this site as Salavasa, although it has also been suggested that they came from Sicily. Unfortunately, we do not have enough evidence to confirm uh, such a conclusion. I already briefly mentioned the Shardana, but to add more detail, as scholars, we find ourselves searching for clues in the most unlikely of places. We're talking about the Old Testament Bible now. Outside of the archaeology and the Egyptian text, the Bible is considered to be the last source of literature which described the enigmatic Sea Peoples. In the world of academia, it has always been the general consensus that some of the Bible's poetry predates its prose literature. For instance, the poetry came first, whether it was preserved orally or otherwise, and eventually the prose stories were built around it. The same theory has been applied to the already mentioned Song of Deborah, which is in the Book of Judges, chapter 5, which scholars date to circa 1100 BCE. It is generally accepted that this poem preserves an Israelite battle against the Shardana, or the Sheridan. This connection was made when scholars studying some of the archives found that Ugarit, located to the north of the battleground, discovered the name of a prince of a nearby Shardana colony dating to the 14th century BCE. Uh, his name was Zisurua, or Sisarua, that is the name Sisera, the very same name found in the poem of Judges. However, it should not be assumed that this is the same Sisera. The name could and would have been a common one. The poem tells of a battle that occurred between Megiddo and Tanakh. Archaeological professor Adam Zertal had found evidence of a Shardana settlement just south of this location at El Ahwat, which is the Arabic word for the walls. Uh, this settlement dates to 1220 to 1170 BCE, and after 1170 BCE, it had not been occupied since. As mentioned earlier, the Shardana have been in and around the Levant for centuries and also are fairly well documented across multiple sources. We see evidence of their occupation in the general Near East as early as the Amarna letters during, you know, dating to the 14th century BCE. Here they served as part of an Egyptian garrison in Byblos uh, where they provided their services to the mayor, Rib Hadda. Uh, they served as personal guards for Ramses II and fought alongside the pharaoh, like I've mentioned earlier, uh, at his most memorable battle at Kadesh. Uh, the inscription of Merneptah and Ramses III pit the Shardana against the pharaohs as uh, part of the coalition of sea peoples uh, invading Egypt. At approximately 1100 BCE, the Onomastikon of Amenenope 
uh, lists them as occupying the Phoenician coast along the Eastern Mediterranean in the Levant. In almost every documented source, the Shardana were commonly depicted as hired mercenaries. In administration documents from the reigns of Ramses III, there is evidence for settlements, both land and goods intended for uh, Shardana mercenaries. What of their origins? Theories put forward claim that the Shardana came from western Anatolia, the Semitic East, the Ionian coast, and even the island of Sardinia. The island of Sardinia seems like the most plausible theory. During the late Bronze Age, Mycenaeans and possibly Cypriots introduced the possibilities of a better lifestyle to the Sardinian peoples. This in turn encouraged many to sail east for new opportunities. We also have the Carcassa. Mentions of the Carcassa, sometimes Carcia, are only made in passing. They are listed as an ally to the Hittites in the Battle of Kadesh without additional details. Hittite records reinforce the idea of an alliance between the two nations. However, it is the Onomasticon of Amenhotep that geographically locates the Carcassa in the land of the Lucca, leading scholars to believe that they were situated in the southwestern tip of Anatolia, uh, the Hittite coastal area of Caria. Then there were the Cheker. The Cheker took part in the campaign against the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses III. They are one of a few major groups depicted in the reliefs at Medinet Habu in Egypt. The 11th century BCE, Wenamon Papyrus recalls the author's visit to the Canaanite city of Dor, which he calls a town of the Cheker. The archaeological site of Taldor is located in today's northern Israel and along the Mediterranean coast. Archaeological evidence supports the claim of Cheker overtaking the town during the period with excavations unearthing Philistine-style pottery and tools. Based on the similarities that the Cheker have with the Philistines and their ships identified as those belonging to the Chakar at Medinet Habu, there appears to be a strong Aegean connection. Also present on the same Medinet Habu reliefs, the Cheker warriors are depicted with what is called hoplite-like plumes on their uh, helmets, which is often identified as uh, being Greek in origin. It is also interesting that in the Papyrus Harris, the pharaoh Ramses III groups them with the Philistines. I slew the Denyan in their islands while the Cheker and the Philistines were made into ashes. The Shardana and the Weshesh of the sea were made non-existent, captured altogether and brought in captivity to Egypt like the sands of the shore. I settled them in the strongholds, bound in my name. Their military classes were as numerous as hundreds thousands. I assigned portions for them all with clothing and provisions from the treasuries and granaries every year. The strong connection that the Cheker have with the Philistines implies that they came from a region close to them. I will provide more details on the origins of the Philistines in a bit, but it is of my opinion that they originate from eastern Crete, and more specifically from Zacro, which is a site containing the ruins of the Minoan civilization. This hypothesis was originally proposed by the well-renowned Egyptologist Sir William Matthew Flinders Petrie. Next on our what seems to be a long list are the Weshesh. The Weshesh were part of a combined force of sea peoples that invaded and attacked the Egyptian Delta region during the reign of Ramses III. 
We know very little about them. It has been suggested that they were somehow linked with Troy, since Weshesh closely resembles the Hittite name Velusa, which is Homer's Helios. However, it seems more likely that they are associated with Iasos or Asos, sometimes called Isos in southwestern Anatolia, nearby the Carcassa. The fact that Egyptian texts connect them with the sea implies that they too are a seafaring people, and with Yassos being a coastal region, it seems somewhat plausible. Now we are turning our attention to the Teresh. It has long been suggested that the Teresh were one and the same as the Turanians, also referred to as the Tarsinians in the other Greek sources. According to the Greek geographer Strabo, the label Turanian referred to the Etruscans, for whom the Turanian Sea is named. It has also been suggested that these Teresh were Trojan refugees escaping the destruction that befell their homeland, you know, at the hands of the Mycenaean Greeks and eventually settling in the regions of what is now Tuscany in Italy, lending credence to the migrations of Aeneas in Virgil's Aeneid. However, in my latest research, at least one of these claims is uh, challenged. The Teresh are documented as part of a larger coalition of migrants threatening Egyptian shores during the reigns of Pharaohs Merneptah and Ramses III. We do not know much about them, only that they were the Teresh of the sea, which meant that they came from an island and not Anatolia, likely dismissing the Trojan hypothesis. Oddly enough, we may come to a proper identification when analyzing non-Egyptian sources. I suggest that the Teresh were from the Aegean, more specifically native Cretans, from a province referred to in the classical period and later as Tilosos. Among the scattered Linear B inscriptions, there are multiple references to the toponym Turiso. This was the ancient name of the same location. Its inhabitants were referred to as Turisia and Turisio. Tilusos is located on the northern uh, shores of central Crete. While this seems to be yet another piece of the puzzle, we cannot say without a reasonable doubt that the Teresh are one and the same with the Turisia. Aside from the similarities to the name of the location and its peoples, the only other clue is that they came from the sea, that is an island in the midst of the Mediterranean. And finally, we have the Peleset. They would be immortalized as ancient Israel's worst enemy in the scriptures of the Old Testament. They are the Philistines. Much like the ancient Israelites, the Philistines were strangers to the foreign land of Canaan. Although to date, their origin still remains somewhat of a mystery. From where did they originate prior to their settlement in Canaan? The Old Testament may shed a bit of light on this question. It is recorded in both the books of Genesis and Amos that the Philistines were from Kaftor. Kaftor, also known as Kaptaru or Kaptada in ancient Akkadian sources and Kefchu in ancient Egyptian sources, has been generally accepted by modern scholars to be the island of Crete, situated in the southern region of the Aegean Sea. Despite these biblical references providing us with an answer, it beckons the follow-up question, how credible of an answer is it? Some of our earliest references to the Philistines can be traced as far back as the 12th century BCE in ancient Egypt. It is from an inscription located at a mortuary temple in Medinet Habu, situated on the western side of Thebes in Egypt. 
dating to approximately 1150 BCE and commissioned by Pharaoh Ramses III, the inscription speaks of a battle and defeat of the same confederation of sea peoples that I've been talking about this entire time. In the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, the inscription specifically identifies an ethnic group from within this confederation and in opposition to the Egyptians called the Peleset. This is synonymous to the Hebrew ethnic term given to these same peoples of Pelishtim, that is, the Philistines. The inscription continues to state that after their defeat in the battle that took place in the Nile Delta region, the pharaoh resettled the Philistines in the land of Canaan to the east. Uh, the Philistines would then thrive in this region and establish their pentopolis, that is, the five uh, cities of Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. The inscription of uh, Ramses III provides yet another valuable resource to these Philistines, and that is a clear image of their appearance. Before settling in Canaan and transforming into the rivals of the Israelites, we can archaeologically trace the Philistines back to Egypt. We still do not have a definitive answer to their origins prior to this. From whence did they come? Commonly referred to as the modern queen of the Philistines, archaeologist Trudy Dotan believed that in some part they originated from the island of Cyprus to the north of Egypt and west of Canaan. Dotan would continue to excavate outside of Israel and in Cyprus, Working closely with Cyprus's director of the Department of Antiquities, Dr. Vasos Karayorgis, who previously excavated the site of Kition, Dothan focused specifically on the Cypriot site of Athenu. It eventually yielded extraordinary finds of the late Helladic 3C pottery, which dates to approximately 1200 to 1025 BCE. This pottery was reminiscent of the local manufactured pottery found in the land of the Philistines in Canaan. Other clues linking the Philistines to Cyprus were the Encomi ivory-made game box. It shows image of their dress, the short paneled kilts with wide hem and tassels, and the ribbed corslet found above the waist and over their shirts, and an image of a warrior with a similar headdress as seen in Egyptian reliefs, engraved on a, on a stone seal. While the excavations of Dotan indicated that there was indeed a Philistine presence on the island of Cyprus at the time and or just prior to their invasion of Egypt and resettlement in the Levant, it still did not conclusively produce sufficient evidence to claim that they originated from Cyprus. For all we know, the Philistine presence was nothing more than what was observed elsewhere in the Near East, that is, one of the bodyguard or hired mercenary. At least, that is what the image of Enkomi or the Enkomi game box would lead one to believe. Also, let us remember the island of Cyprus was referred to as Alashia, not Kaftor. Now, based on my personal research, it is of my opinion that the Old Testament verses may be correct on this matter. Possible earlier references and never-before-associated links to the Philistines may be found on the island of Crete. Archaeologists Dotan and Karayorgis have been on the right path and not too far from the truth all along, although they were missing a vital piece to the puzzle, and that piece was to be found on the island of Crete and at Pylos on the southern Greek mainland in the Peloponnese. 
following the collapse of the Mycenaean civilization and at the end of the Late Bronze Age, new dialects of the Greek language emerged, which included variations of Doric, Aeolic, Attic, Ionic, and Arcado-Cypriot, the latter of which we are concerned with at the present. In the Late Bronze Age, the Mycenaean Greek language was established as the lingua franca of the Aegean world. When the Mycenaean civilization collapsed, entering into this dark age, and the centralized palaces and outlying settlements dispersed into the highlands and into more isolated communities, various dialects descending from this once unified Mycenaean Greek language emerged and continued to evolve. Eventually, Greece stepped out of the Dark Age and into the Archaic period at approximately the 8th century BCE. Uh, in this period, we can archaeologically observe the Greek colonization of and communication with the Aegean, Anatolia, Cyprus to the east, and also southern Italy and Sicily to the west, thus spreading this, these various dialects throughout the Mediterranean world. By this time, these variations of the Greek language had evolved so much that the only dialect that seemed more like its direct descendant, the Mycenaean Greek, was Arcadio-Cypriot. It was spoken in the central Peloponnese and in Cyprus. The earliest recorded evidence of Arcadio-Cypriot Greek dates to the 11th century BCE with an inscription found on a bronze skewer in a tomb in Peleopathos in southern or southwestern Cyprus. The inscription is written in the same Cypro-Minoan syllabary related to linear A and B and contains the Greek proper name Opheltas. This find showcases that a post-Mycenaean Greek presence existed in Cyprus during the Dark Age. Did groups of Mycenaean migrants migrate from the Aegean and to Cyprus following the collapse of the Mycenaean Empire between 1200 and 1100 BCE? The inscription in the Mycenaean-style pottery of local manufacturers seem to indicate that this is the case. That aside, our next step is to locate an origin of their departure. As we sift through the surviving inscriptions of Mycenaean Linear B tablets, a reoccurring word seems to hold a link. Transliterated by both Ventris and Chadwick, the terms in question are still undeciphered. These terms are perite and periteu. Based on the Pylos inscription number VN130, perite is written in the dative case, that is, stating that a product came from a region known as perite, suggesting that it was a town or province of some sort. Another inscription from Pylos number AN654 speaks of a clumenos, a senior coast guard officer of perite. However, in this case, it would seem that it is written in the toponym case, periteu. Uh, this second form is also observed on two separate tablets found at Knossos on Crete, C594 and B5025. One of these two tablets indicate a possible offering of sheep from this town or region. The second is just too badly damaged to interpret. Now, going back to the Egyptian rendering of the term Philistine, that is, Peliset, it is written with hieroglyphs representing P-R-S-T where the R is sometimes interchangeable with the letter L. The same can be said with Mycenaean Greek. The syllabary does not account for the letter L, which is why in some cases the letter R can be rendered as such. Another interesting fact about Mycenaean Greek and Linear B is that there are cases in which the letter T can be rendered as ST, making a st 
south. An excellent example for both cases can be observed with the Mycenaean word tereta, which equates with the later Greek word telesta, translating to inofficial. If we apply the same logic to the word perite and periteo, we would read peliste and pelistu, which shows an uncanny similarity to the Egyptian peliset and the Hebrew pelishtim. The im ending indicates that it is an ethnic term in the Hebrew dialect, thus translating to people of pelisht. And the word is similar to the Akkadian palastu. If we continue to follow the clues with the few surviving inscriptions containing the two variations of this word, there seems to be some sort of indication that this town or province may have been located outside of the Greek mainland and local to the island of Crete. If this is true, then we have the earliest reference to the Philistines within the historical record from before 1200 BCE. This would either mean that the Philistines had eventually migrated eastward towards the Levant were either Mycenaean or the product of the intermingling of the Mycenaean and indigenous Minoan stock from a town or province on the island of Crete, proving the Bible's claim to be true. As they moved eastward, some would have stopped on the island of Cyprus, either permanently or briefly before moving on to Egypt and the Levant. In recent years, a discovery of an ancient Philistine gravesite, the, the first ever discovered at the Philistine city of Ashkelon on the southwestern coast of Israel, provided archaeologists the first opportunity to conduct DNA tests on the skeletal remains of the ancient site's inhabitants. Uh, the samples varied from individuals who first settled the site at around 1200 BCE all the way to the 10th to 9th century BCE. The results indicated that the earliest generations of Ashkelon inhabitants were of direct European descent, that is, mainland Greece, Crete, or Sardinia, while the later generations showed a mix of uh, European and local Canaanite descent, indicating that the Philistines were intermingling with the locals of the region. When it comes to the Sea Peoples, the largest misconception is that they were raiding nearby regions for commercial gain or immigrating to a new land for new opportunities. In some cases, the, the migration would have been more peaceful than chaotic, as entire families, refugees as they were, searched for new lands to call home. The great Karnak inscription of Merneptah uh, notes that these sea peoples brought families over with them, giving us a sense that these groups intended to stay. The reliefs on the mortuary temple of Ramses III at Medinet Habu depict families and livestock moving along with these sea peoples invaders. And we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroscatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis signing off. <laughs>